In the, uh, the small group that I attend here at Emmanuel, uh, a few weeks ago, my friend Chris mentioned that one of our deepest desires is to be fully known by others. That is, deep down, we all want others, or at least certain people, to fully know us, to know our thoughts, our fears, our failures, everything about us. We all have this deep longing that's inside of us. But he added that one of our biggest fears is to be rejected by others, that people would come to know us perfectly, fully, and completely, and then judge us to be unworthy of their affections. And so we live our lives with a deep longing to be known, but it is checked by a desire to protect ourselves from rejection, to hide the seedy or unseemly parts of our lives, and so these two things are constantly at war within us. To put it another way, we fear that if we reveal who we really are, just as Jesus did, we will face scorn and rejection, just as Jesus did. And so we hide, and we scheme, and we live out a life that we think others will accept and affirm. We spend countless hours cultivating a self that we think others will accept, so that in return, we'll receive their affections. But we also worry incessantly that if we slip up, if people were to get to know the true us, to see us as we really are, we would be rejected, alone, and abandoned. In his play, After the Fall, Arthur Miller touches on these themes, and he puts these words in a character's mouth. You know, more and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart, then what a good lover, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or what the hell ever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. And I would say that this quote in many ways gets to the heart of the matter before us tonight. We so carefully script our lives so that others or someone or something will judge us. Someone will tell us that we are good enough or worthy enough, but what do we find instead? We find an endless argument with ourselves. Am I a kind person, a smart person, a wise person, an artistic person? Or, strangely enough, have I finally convinced others that I don't care what they think about me? Do others accept the personal identity project I have taken so long to cultivate? I need some final judgment on me, some final pronouncement, but all I really seem to have is the unstable perception of others, which is based on the small part of myself that I've chosen to reveal. But the more pressing question for us tonight is what will the judgment be on us when we are fully revealed? What will the judgment be on us when our personal identity project is burned away by the blazing glory of Jesus Christ? And then we stand spiritually naked before him. And so as we get to this question tonight, I want us to approach this time together as an opportunity to commune with Jesus. It's my hope that the words I speak will simply be words that you in turn can pray to Jesus Christ asking him to search your heart. So please feel free to do this in whatever way you think is best, maybe with your eyes closed or journaling in your bulletin. But I would ask this would be a time of prayer between you and Jesus Christ. Also tonight, we need to face with unblinking eyes the reality that we stand naked before a naked God. 
When we think of the crucifixion of Jesus, himself completely naked as he hung on the cross, we must picture him looking back at us from the cross, seeing us for exactly who we are. We must picture ourselves spiritually naked before him, every sin and shortcoming completely exposed. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. There's not a single thing, good or bad, you have ever done, said, or experienced that is hidden from Jesus Christ. And the same is true for me. It is with that reality in mind that we come to our text this evening. And so I'd like to read to you Matthew 27, 32 through 50. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I was uh, speaking with a friend recently. And she mentioned that services like Good Friday can be hard for her. And she explained that this is because we are sometimes told we need to sit down and think about what terrible sinners we are. Put another way, you need to think about how bad you must be to have made Jesus die in such a terrible way. The focus is not on Jesus, but rather is on heaping some kind of religiously charged shame upon ourselves. And I think many of us know firsthand how destructive this can be. But one of the most striking aspects of the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus is how little attention is paid to the agony of the cross. There is simply little attention paid to the physical agony Jesus experienced. Instead, the focus of Matthew and the other writers is on what Jesus accomplished, his victory over sin and death and evil. And so I want to suggest tonight that the proper response to the story of Christ's passing is not shame, but rather the correct response is worship-saturated repentance. Again, the proper response to the passion of Jesus Christ is worship-saturated repentance. Matthew tells us that after Jesus was wrongly sentenced to die, he was forced to carry the beam that he would eventually be impaled upon to the site of his death. But likely due to weakness and exhaustion from his many beatings, he was unable to do so. And so a man named Simon was chosen from the crowd to do it for him. And then as quickly as you could relay the account, we are told that upon his arrival to Golgotha, Jesus was crucified or nailed to the cross. And so in the same vein as Matthew, I'll quickly pass over the physical brutality of the cross. 
Instead, I'll remind us that Jesus faced scorn and mockery as he hung naked on the cross. He was, physically speaking, completely exposed to the world. Think about that for a second. He was completely exposed to the world, and the world mocked him. He had also tried to make himself known to the world. He had tried to make clear who he was as a person, that he was Savior, the King, God himself who had become man, and the world mocked and rejected him. They subjected him to a kind of brutal hazing. So when Jesus was exposed to the world, the world mocked and rejected him. The most obvious way was the derisive sign that hung above him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. But also many around Jesus personally mocked him. Those walking by looked at him and said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And the priests and the scribes mocked him as well, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will then believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So Jesus, mostly abandoned by his friends, faced scorn and mockery, naked on the cross. When he was exposed, he was rejected. And so let me return what I asked us to picture together. Jesus naked on the cross and ourselves spiritually naked before him. And what we have to realize is that when we stand before Jesus, there's not even the opportunity to explain or justify ourselves. To paraphrase another author, Jesus already knows all our reasons for doing everything we have ever done better than we ever could. And so as we stand before Jesus, our real self is exposed. Everything we have ever done, said, thought, we stand completely naked and exposed before him as he is naked and exposed on the cross. And of course, our fear is that we will be rejected as those around Jesus rejected him. We are fully known by Jesus, and at the same time, we fear we will be fully rejected. We fear Jesus will say, I know about your sex life. Get out of my presence. I know of your obsession with pornography. I've seen how you spend your nights. Now get away from me. I've seen how you treat your family, your spouse, your children, your parents, the unkind words you speak to them. Now get away. I've seen how you step on others to get ahead. I know why you're really in ministry, why you volunteer at church, why you want to be in front of others. I know the intense jealousy that you harbor. I know of your obsession with pleasing others. Tonight we stand spiritually naked before Jesus and he knows every single thing about us. And my friends, the Bible tells us that based on the knowledge Jesus holds, we should be rejected. We are told in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul adds that the penalty for this sin is death, eternal separation from the Father. This is a stark reality that we all have to face head on. So what will happen? Right? We stand spiritually naked before Jesus, and what will become of us? We have finally fulfilled our desire to be really and fully and truly known by someone, but now it seems our great fear of rejection will be fulfilled because of this. We've gotten half of what we desire, but it seems this half will bring us to ruin. Picture yourselves here. We stand paralyzed, unable to move, before Jesus who hangs on the cross. Perhaps we can no longer even look at Jesus in the eye, knowing what he knows about us. Think of yourself here, alone, afraid, and paralyzed. But it is God and his great love who acts. Just as we think that the full weight of his judgment will come down on us, it is instead poured out on his divine son 
who hangs naked and exposed on the cross. Just as we expect to be rejected after being fully known, the Father instead fully pours his wrath on the Son. It is like all the sufferings of Jesus up to this point were just a warm-up for what now happens. Because Matthew tells us that several hours after he was nailed to the cross, darkness came over the land, and in the midst of this darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's good practice to not push too far into such matters, but what appears clear is that Jesus experienced at this moment separation from the Father for the first and only time. Put another way, Jesus experienced hell in our place, as hell is the complete absence of the presence of God the Father, which Jesus experienced in our place on the cross. And so what we find here is the great substitution. On the cross, Jesus was our substitute in bearing the judgment we deserve. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our stead. And after he bore this wrath, he willingly breathed his last breath. He willingly gave up his life in our place. He was rejected by God and man. And as we know, and as we'll discuss Sunday, he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death and the powers of evil, showing himself to be both God and Savior. And so as, as I said before, the call tonight in light of the suffering of Jesus is to respond in worship-saturated repentance. Not to heap shame on yourself or to berate yourself as if feeling bad could solve our problem. See, this was the practice during the scourge of the Black Plague, when people would whip themselves, which was known as self-flagellation, with the hope that God would remove what was thought to be his judgment from the land. It's a practice where we say, look what I have done to myself, haven't I suffered enough? Instead, the call tonight is to first look outward, it is to be in awe of this Jesus, to worship him as being fully God he rightfully deserves, and to worship him specifically for his love towards us. We have to remember, as one author puts it, that Jesus did not come to die for mankind, but for men. That is, the sacrifice of Jesus was an act of personal love shown to you specifically as an individual. You here tonight, Jesus died for you. We are called to look outward and worship this God who would leave his place of beauty and majesty and come down to us, becoming like us by taking on flesh, to worship him for a supreme show of love on the cross. But this worship, as we've said, must flow into repentance. The death of Jesus can do nothing for us if we don't repent. We must come to Jesus in faith, confessing who we really are. Rebels, sinners, those who are in rebellion against our king. Those who are worthy of his judgment. We must see ourselves as we really are, not how we want others to see us. We must acknowledge our spiritual nakedness before the naked God. We must confess what he already knows about us. We must confess these things and repent of what we have done. We must then put our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. It is an act of the will whereby we acknowledge and trust that our only hope for forgiveness is found in him and his work on the cross. And it is by that we receive his righteousness. We must accept his lordship, turn over our lives to him, and renounce our claims as king or queen over ourselves. And by that is how we will find what we are desperately searching for. Think of it this way. On one occasion, Jesus was asked by the members of another crowd, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Put another way, how can we be accepted by God, affirmed by him, justified by him, declared righteous? This is what the crowd wanted to know. 
Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Right, so there it is from the mouth of Jesus himself. The only way to be accepted by God, the only way to be justified by him is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do, when we, do we will find the love and acceptance of God himself. God will see us as righteous as Jesus, cleansed from our sin and rebellion. And what we'll also find is that we will be fully known and fully accepted. We will find exactly what our hearts have been looking for. And we'll also find restoration in our human relationships. We can open up the parts of our lives we work so hard to conceal from one another. Now that we know we've been forgiven by God, we can now expose ourselves to others. Think about this freedom. With our friends and family, we have the chance to say, this is who I really am. This is every part of me. We don't have to focus on a personal identity project because we have the full acceptance of God. We now have a God-given identity as his son or his daughter. We no longer have to obsess over the approval of others, but are free to actually love and care for them. People are no longer problems we have to crack, but individuals we get to love. Let me say that again. In light of the death of Jesus, people are no longer problems we have to crack, but individuals we get to love. We're finally free to really and truly care for others and are free to really and truly reveal ourselves to others. So tonight, again, the call is to face the reality of our spiritual nakedness and to respond with worship-saturated repentance. And perhaps you're sitting here now as a Christian and the call is the same to you. Good Friday, as we know, is a time to repent. It's to turn from the destructive patterns of sin you have found yourself in and Jesus already knows about them anyway. It's the time to break off the sexual misconduct you are engaged in, to end that relationship, to stop with pornography. Tonight is the time to repent of your gossiping, of how you so quickly look to speak ill of others when they've left the room. Tonight is the time to acknowledge your love of money and the hold that it has over your whole life. Tonight is the time to stop saying, you know, what I'm really doing isn't that bad. Tonight is the time to repent of the desperate control you seek to have over your own life. Tonight is the time to repent of the sin you think you can never speak of and never talk about. There's freedom here in that to come specifically talk to Father Aaron or Susan. Right? These are people you can go to, that, go to for this. You can come and expose yourself and say, this is who I am. This is what I've been hiding. I want you to know me. I want to reveal myself. But there are some here tonight who just don't buy it. Maybe you did at one point. Maybe it made sense a few years ago. Or maybe you always thought this death of Jesus was a simple tale told by simple people. And uh, perhaps my preaching doesn't do much to change your mind on that. I'm sorry. But, uh, but what I've spoken of here tonight, but hasn't what I've spoken here tonight stirred your soul? Isn't this what you were longing for? And wasn't Arthur Miller right? You were made to be fully known and fully accepted. We are not sentenced to live like Sisyphus, living each day with no meaning, rolling our daily responsibilities up a hill only to start all over the next day. We are made to be fully known and fully accepted by God himself. And so tonight I just want to pose the question, what would convince you? I mean this as an honest question. What would it take to convince you of the lordship of Jesus Christ? I would also ask, do you want it to be true? Are you open to being convinced? I think it's important to answer these questions first so we can clear the deck and to face things as they really are. If there's nothing that could convince you or you simply don't want it, want it to be true, 
then you're disbelieving for other reasons. Perhaps because it was how you or a family member was unjustly treated. And this is why I rejected Christianity. I saw my father, a kind and gentle man, be gravely mistreated by fellow Christians as he sought to pastor a church. So tonight, when I talk about the struggle with unbelief, I'm not speaking as someone who has only visited such a place briefly. I'm speaking as a longtime former resident, as someone who still finds himself back there from time to time. I walked miles and miles down the path of disbelief and then started walking the opposite way because I found the views along the path to be unfavorable. I know how hard it can be. as It's like you lost your center of gravity. Or it's like you're falling and want to grab onto something, but when you reach out, instead of finding a welcoming hand, you instead find yourself grasping at air. So please first know that you're not alone in your struggle. But also know that it's possible to disbelieve for many reasons, such as a strict upbringing. Or perhaps because you want to be accepted and loved by a person or group, or perhaps simply because you like sex. Others here want to believe, but just can't seem to make themselves do it. And still others have given up trying to find an answer, and you connect with what Camus says. I don't know whether this world has meaning that transcends it, but I know that I cannot know this meaning, and that it is impossible for me just now to know it. So no matter what group you're in, just know that we care about you, and that we're glad you're here. You can come talk to me or another pastor. You don't have to be alone in this journey of disbelief. But also, just for a moment tonight, I'd ask you that you pray for me, pray with me, as we bow our heads together. Jesus, if you're present here, if you are the Son of God, if you are the divine deliverer, I pray you would make yourself known to me in clear and undeniable ways, ways of your choosing, but clear as the noonday sun. Amen. I would ask you, if you're doubting tonight, to pray this prayer every day for two weeks and then to see how Jesus moves in your life. And again, please come talk to me or another pastor. And for all of us here, I'd invite you tonight to meet with prayer ministers who are going to be around the Kiva. They can listen and pray for you, no matter what you may be feeling or needing tonight. For those doubting, for those need, who need to repent for anything, you can come and reveal yourself and find acceptance and love from the prayer ministers. And so as we close tonight, we can quickly forget what was spoken of and move on to jokes and small talk to relieve the, the seriousness of the matters before us. Or we can turn inward and beat ourselves up. Or we can look to Jesus and be fully known while at the same time finding full acceptance through his rejection. So, in the name of the Father, Son, 